and welcome to Everyday Anarchism. My guest today is Lawrence Rue, and we're here to discuss Stanley Cavell. And before I let Larry talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about why I invited Larry on the show. So earlier this year, I guess last year now, because this is 2023, um, this book came out, uh, Here and There, which is a collection of works by this uh, brilliant American philosopher, Stanley Cavell. And I hadn't read any Cavell for a long time, really since I studied Cavell with Larry as an undergraduate at the University of South Carolina. And as I was reading these essays, this posthumous collection, I found in it almost everything that I had been thinking about when I had been making this podcast and that I had been thinking about and working on for the past 15 years in, in graduate school and as a professor and as a teacher, Walter Benjamin and uh, Wittgenstein and Emerson and Thoreau and film and with Agnes Varda and Chris Marker and just, I had this amazing shock of recognition. And I thought, you know, this idea that I'm calling everyday anarchism is in some ways drawn from Emerson above all else. And it was really through Cavell that I experienced Emerson. And I think I've been doing a, a somewhat Cavellian project for my entire professional career without truly being conscious of it. And it is, uh, Larry, it is your fault because you, in my very first semester of college, uh, gave me Emerson and Cavell and, and, and Shakespeare. And we read all of them and have been talking about them ever since. That was, uh, that was 2001. So you and I have been carrying on this conversation back and forth with, you know, some interruptions for over two decades now. And I'm just overjoyed to have you uh, on this podcast and continuing that conversation. Well, um, to borrow a phrase from Thoreau, um, you have published my guilt. <laughs> uh, so... That said, uh, I'm glad to be here and appreciate the invitation. And um, certainly for me, um, teaching Cavell, finding a way to do that kind of mid-career um, was a new life, you might say. I mean, Cavell had been with me for a long time, but um, my specialty, so to speak, in which uh, I was happily at work um, <clears throat> would, you know, not necessarily have included Cavell, and certainly not, um, you know, something to, so to speak, wear on my sleeve um, when I was um, trying to get a job at USC. But uh, there I was, and it all, you know, came back on me, and it was a most welcome surprise. So I turned a lot of my attention there, and that course, which was about really inspired by remarriage comedy, which is really where um, Cavell has gotten to not only, um, you know, he's, he, he's able to work with Emerson and fall for Emerson. Um, and I think in many ways he does it through that, through that book because um, he confesses, you know, while he was in the process of writing that book, I think it's a 78 essay, which is, um, usually in the back of his book on Thoreau, that he found, um, you know, he couldn't really um, engage happily with both of them, that Emerson was preachy, and there was a lot of kind of cajolery. And um, of course, um, 
by the time he publishes in 79 uh, his long, um, you know, awaited revision of his dissertation, there is Emerson's American scholar, you know, the office of the scholars to raise and to cheer um, as an epigraph uh, right in the front. And he's writing, I mean, I think, it, and he's writing um, uh, what will become in 81, I think it is, uh, Pursuits of Happiness. And right in the front, you have, um, oh, a quote from Emerson's uh, history. When a thought of Plato becomes a thought to me, time is no more. Um, <laughs> and uh, the unattainable, um, uh, the unattained, uh, the attainable or whatever it is, the unattained but attainable self also is that Emersonian perfectionist kind of rubric um, that's right there in the front of Pursuits of Happiness as well. And he acknowledges his change of heart in those early essays, thinking, I mean, thinking of Emerson is a wonderful title, right? I mean, what's go going on with the title? For me, it's like the praise of folly, right? Because <laughs> it's that crossing the boundary between subject and object and um, finding that at the heart of Emerson's uh, philosophy, if you want to call it that. Of course, Cavell says that... Um, Emerson, uh, I think he says Emerson uh, gives a call, <laughs> gives a call for philosophy, and that what philosophy has become may not be something that Americans want to embrace wholeheartedly um, and inherit a whole structure, uh, edifices um, of European, the European philosophical tradition in the modern age. And uh, I think. Um, in a way, of course, what's happening is that Cavell is able to is trained in a kind of analytical tradition and a British analytical tradition, and it sets itself over against increasingly over against continental philosophy. And I think um, in Emerson, Cavell is finding a way to acknowledge both sides and not, um, you know, disinherit them abruptly or uh, ir irretrievably, you might say. So to find um, an Emersonian in, in uh, Austin and Wittgenstein um, and uh, carry on as an American. Oh, this is, <laughs> this is already such a rich conversation. I want to say briefly as just a, as, as a passing note. So these, these comedies of, of remarriage, these wonderful films that were my introduction to Cavell, and also my introduction to studying film as, as an undergraduate. Um, the Criterion Channel right now is running a, a co collection of screwball comedy classics, mostly, I think it might include all of the films in Cavell's list, although a, a number more. And if you read that book, Pursuits of Happiness, he, he explains how similar his these remarriage comedies are to some of these other screwball comedies, and then also explains why despite their similarities, he assigns them this different status. But the tagline for the uh, Criterion Channel collection is, first comes love, then comes anarchy. And I saw that, and I just was, was struck again by the, by the serendipity, and that collection was published this month, I believe, maybe, maybe December, so right as we're talking about this. Um, well, so you could say, then comes mutual aid. Yes. Yes, precisely. I mean, this is a, I mean, I think, well, I mean, this is a way of thinking about the, the marriages in the, in the pursuits of happiness book that there's, that there's a problem 
with marriage in a in an egalitarian age, which is that it is a hierarchical and patriarchal institution. And Cavell has been deeply influenced by a number of things, including feminist philosophy. And one thing that might seem utterly passe to my listeners, but in, in the 80s, simply thinking through what a marriage might be like or a relationship between a man and a woman that wasn't inherently patriarchal, this was a this was a provocative and and radical thing, it seems to me, at the time. And to suggest you could find it in Hollywood movies from 50 years before is even more provocative and I, and I would say again anarchic in the sort of very loose meaning of that of that term well you know um i'm trying to uh, remember who the feminist scholar was down at princeton um but she was very prominent uh, she is i think i uh, i hope still uh, you know happily in life but um she called um marriage manual um, she'd ever read. And um, when I mentioned that to Stanley, he said, yeah, I'm not sure whether she was being ironic or not. <laughs> <laughs> so you, so uh, you, you cut out for a bit, Larry. She called Pursuits of Happiness a, the best marriage manual she had ever exactly, read? Exactly, <laughs> she'd ever read. But um, yeah, I mean, of course, Stanley grew up on those movies as a kid, went to them, you know, and Stella in his, you know, subsequent kind of companion volume about Hollywood melodrama. Um, there's a beautiful story about his mother and her relation to Stella Dallas um, when, as a family, they would go to the movies on Friday night. And certainly a part of that um, gesture of writing about those films was not only a kind of recollection, so to speak, of uh, things past, but it was also uh, outreach in terms of this was a world in which, what, half of the United States saw those movies when the studio system, you know, was in charge of the distribution of the films as well in theaters, and um, and everybody went to the movies. What a change, I mean, we're in now. Um, I mean, we've gone through so many, I mean, changes since then, but that was certainly uh, Cavell's aspiration to speak to, you know, I mean, again, it's an ordinary language mm -hmm. aspiration, which he's in, you know, when he says in or that early essay, I'm forgetting in must we mean what we say, maybe the title essay, but, you know, when he talks about, um, if I wanted to know how to say this, I just ask my landlady, <laughs> um, right, and not, <laughs> not have to create a yet another, you know, uh, esoteric concept to cover that uh, moment in time, so to speak. And and that in there, of course, of course, it's interesting with Cavell because in a way you could say he was playing by the rules. I mean, that's as he tells his own story, what getting, uh, I would say, getting a PhD, writing a dissertation was an ordeal for him. But it was an ordeal of um, a struggle with his own, um, you know, desires to uh, write truly and from the heart. Uh, and um, so, you know, he, um, I don't think he actually, I think he was, he was denied, of course, he was denied tenure at Berkeley. Uh, he was offered tenure after Harvard gave him tenure. Uh, and that was the moment when as a dissertation, he completed, and I think that would be in 63, 
62, 63, went to Harvard, I believe it for 63, 64. Um, and of course that, that um, wouldn't become the claim of reason until it was much revised and given a whole, and given a whole um, fourth section and published in 79 as, um, as the claim of reason. And by then, of course, Shakespeare was in play. When you ask about uh, anarchism and nihilism as well, and, and how to get at that in, in, uh, in Cavell, I would think the, that the, the essay on King Lear uh, mm -hmm. would be a very good place to go, this, particularly the second half, for which he apologizes because he thinks it's written out of um, a moment. And of course, that moment would be um, when uh, the universities are under siege, and in particular, uh, in um, April of 69, when uh, SDS mainly, uh, SDS inspired the takeover of University Hall at, uh, at Harvard, April the 9th. And um, of course, the next morning, uh, the Massachusetts State Police were there, and uh, their, you know, affinity with uh, uh, academia, and especially with Harvard, was not strong. <laughs> to say the least and so there you had the long-haired radical so to speak and uh, the man in blue and uh, that was of course a huge upheaval and so in terms of of um, chaos you can certainly find it in King Lear but you can find it on April the 9th uh, at, um, at Harvard for sure and it was part of a chaos that for my consciousness, I would have been the previous spring or late winter at Columbia. But of mm -hmm. course, there were, you know, uh, a dozen or more schools where this sort of thing had happened in that year. And um, I mean, Stanley, you know, it's just very interesting to know about that moment and, so to speak, how Stanley was feeling uh, by reading the second part of the Lear essay. It's and um, and then also to read his uh, autobiographical work, uh, um, Little Did I Know, uh, where he talks about the philosophy department. And um, I had I didn't know, of course, he was he and John Rawls, who Rawls, who really in a way inspired in a strong way, let's say, that turn toward moral perfectionism uh, because of his essay on just that topic. In, in his citation of Nietzsche uh, in the chapter from the Theory of Justice. Um, but he and John Rawls were, uh, um, I think they were asked or offered to help the, uh, uh, the African-American students there at, um, uh, at uh, Harvard put together a proposal for a major uh, in, uh, you know, Black studies, African-American studies. And he describes how exhausting that was, you know, that who would fall asleep first, Rawls or Cavell? But they, <laughs> they managed to get it onto the, um, you know, into the Senate uh, or whatever they call it, the, the faculty meeting. But uh, I heard also, I just read recently that, um, that Rawls um, actually bailed out students who had been arrested mm. for that um, but it was, that was chaos, you know, that was a moment where, uh, you know, very negative kind of anarchy uh, was underway in action. 
and and I think um, you know Stanley. I also could just can remember. I mean, Stanley had wonderful students all along, but I think he really felt that in the in the eighties, early eighties, I guess, late seventies, that students were really coming to him, kind of knowing who he was, or you know, with a sense of this was uh, a great place to you know study or to converse. Um, and Cavell, so many of Cavell's books and essays come out of seminars that he was giving, and and of course they undergo many revisions. I did read, by the way, and in, in, I just finished reading the last couple of days because you mentioned how much you liked it. Um, you know, um, the thing, the essay about collecting, mm-hmm. which is a just such a beautiful tour de force, uh, um, and uh, you know the relationship between how you write and how you think is um is just a clear section after section um and um i guess that you know just starting out with the problem of the one and the many i guess that's a problem of uh, anarchy <laughs> too, right yes i do think it's a problem of hierarchy absolutely yeah. hierarchy and anarchy right yes I mean, right <laughs> uh, i mean cavell was a professor he didn't you know, and he loved the university. He didn't love everything that it did, but he helped people, handed people along, as Walker Percy would say, uh, through the very kind of institutional challenges that he writes about um, in, in in his memoir uh, that he faced. Do you remember when in the memoir, in the memoir he has to give a lecture on Kant, I love this one. Um, he has to give, a, you know, great, great thinkers of Europe or whatever it is through the centuries. And he's just basically defeated by the prospect of such a lecture. And he just falls asleep on his floor, like three o'clock on the morning, you know, the day that he's supposed to give this lecture. And, um, and then he gets up and the pages are scattered around. So he calls, uh, his secretary and says that, you know, he's, I, I don't know whether he, I would not want to misquote whether he says he's not feeling well, as they used to say at Harvard, indisposed. <laughs> <laughs> Professor so-and-so is indisposed. <laughs> but, uh, but um, you know, he realizes uh, that this was, that he couldn't do this every day. <laughs> that's what, uh, as helpful as it was, um, he wouldn't have to, you know, uh, but just that's such an honest uh, encounter with the, the, the challenge of these monsters of intellect, as Cavell's call it, tamings in some way, these monsters of intellect, and his candor about it, his honesty. I mean, to call those, to call those lectures pedagogical le- letters, I mean, the, the kind of a t- the knowledge of genre, the idea of a letter, right? Not a lecture, a letter, right? Very, you know, intimacy that is in that context. Yeah, and I I see him over and over again, all throughout his work, maybe undermining isn't quite the right word, but maybe resisting isn't either. I don't know, maybe you'll have to pick the word, but he, he is not following the traditional boundaries and the traditional hierarchies. And he writes, um, one of the things that to me is the essence of of everyday anarchism is my, my dissertation I wrote a lot about um, about urban planning and the progressive age. And I argued that the planning that works best is the planning that's as, as democratic and really as unguided as possible. 
And when I was an undergraduate at the University of South Carolina, um, they did a lot of, they did all sorts of landscaping. There, there was a craze for, for green space in the very beginning of, of this millennium. And they put down brick paths. But before they put down brick paths, they just left the, uh, a field between the library and the uh, student union, and they just let us walk on it. And mm -hmm. we walked on it and made, you know, what are sometimes called goat paths, the paths of students' feet. Mm -hmm. And then the institution came and put down paths, but they put down the paths that we, the students, had, had made. And Cavell uses this as a metaphor in one of the pieces uh, that's collected in here and there of, you know, the way to plan the paths in Harvard Yard is to let the students walk on them. And this mm -hmm. is the, this is a metaphor that I that I used in my dissertation, a metaphor that I've used in this podcast, and then I found Stanley Cavell using it uh, decades at least before I had been in college, maybe even before I was born. And that was another moment where I just thought this is this is a man who, for whom institutions were a place of of struggle and 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 guidance. Mm -hmm. uh, and 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 mutual aid. I mean, what is, you know, what, his relationship with his students, and I would say, I, I mean, my relationship with you as, as an undergraduate was was about mutual aid, not about, not about hierarchy. I never had a sense, Larry, that there was something that I was supposed to learn, and that it was your job to make sure that I that I learned it. Um, it was much more what Cavell calls steps without a path. And I'm still, I'm still walking that path. Maybe some people are following behind me as a way that I'm trying to follow behind you and, and Cavell. I don't know, but that's, you, you don't know that, do you? No, I mean, I do know that um, I was fortunate enough to have a few other people before I really got to know Stanley uh, in my senior year. I, I by really by chance uh, ended up uh, getting to know Robert Coles, um, and uh, I the chance was that I took a course of Eric Erickson's, and you know truth to tell, um, I I was kind of not aware of Erickson, although he would you know in that decade and uh, he would become such a significant public intellectual, really ultimately. In '69, with his uh, his uh, biography of Gandhi, um, but um, I just was, you know, listening to a friend of mine and a couple of others talk about what to take, you know, uh, for the fall semester. And Erickson had this course on the human life cycle, and um, and then one of them mentioned Coles, uh, and Coles was pretty freshly back from living in. Atlanta, you know, he'd been, I mean, the whole, how Children of Crisis comes into being is that um, he, in the the doctor's draft, as they called it, in other words, he could defer the draft until, while he was at medical school, but then he had to go in the service, and he was an, uh, really in charge of a neuropsychiatric center in, um, um, at, in, in Biloxi, I'm forgetting, I think it's, yeah, in Biloxi. Anyway, I mean, this, of course, was also for him, um, the South, you know, exposure to, to the South. And, um, and uh, needless to say, during that time, he read The Movie Goer, mm -hmm. um, a, you know, a, wor a work that 
um, goes right along with pursuits of happiness. It would uh, it would seem to me, which is really about watching movies and getting married. <laughs> it is. I mean, you know, of course, Percy is much more skeptical, right? He's, he he sort of reads the plots as um, more promising than uh, his own encounter with the real world or Binx's, if you will. And of course, Binx is not necessarily. I, I I don't know if I ever told you this, but I uh, I wrote a paper. This I taught in New Orleans, of course, for six years. But during that time, I wrote a paper about um, Harry Beecher Stowe in, in 19th century American stuff. And then it included some stuff on Flannery O'Connor and, um, and Percy. And I sent it to him. And he wrote back and he said, uh, um, you know, you, you shouldn't be too, uh, you know, so kind to Binks. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, I think that's true. You know, Binks is kind of. You know, he sort of uh, cons you into he's he's quite good company, really. You know, and um, but he has to have uh, have Kate say uh, wonderfully, "You idiot, you <laughs> idiot." Um, but um, anyway, so uh, the the kind of uh, I think I think one of the things that Cavell is is um, has responded to and is you know going to employ. In his uh, in his philosophizing and teaching is the allure, the power of film, right? And um, and he'd been, of course, the same year that he wrote about Thoreau, he the same year he published Senses of of Walden, he published The Worldview. I believe they're in the same year, and um, that was you know that was a, sort of an, a, an event, if you will. Who was writing, I, when I, you know, who was um, uh, teaching film? Film was, Cavell actually failed to get a film major uh, in the 80s. Um, he worked with a number of people at Harvard to try to get a film studies expand. I don't think they had, I don't know what they had over in visual studies, but it was unsuccessful. Um, and um, he, and actually Cavell, <laughs> Cavell also proposed a course that uh, um, for the new core curriculum, um, and I, for some reason, he was kind of out of the country when the board met and rejected it. <laughs> and that's the course that became uh, the course on moral perfectionism. Um, but so his, um, you know, he was being vetted. <laughs> he, he was being vetted by people who were not necessarily uh, that impressed, or at least that you know, indulgent, let's say. I mean, I think indulgence is a good word with, is a word people use, uh, you know, about Cavell's writing. Uh, to me, of course, they're not actually reading it, um, yeah. and, you know. But it is indulgent if you have a strict disciplinary um, perspective. And what's this, you know, Harry Berger, who 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 loves, so inspired by Cavell, and particularly picks up this idea of disowning knowledge. Um, but uh, um, he reads, um, of course, he was a wonderful teacher in just this kind of conversational way uh, that, that you're talking about, this sort of his relationship to, to his students. And um, he, Harry refers to uh, the essay on Lear as the essay from outer space. <laughs> but, but it then becomes the essay he can't shake and, and doesn't want to. And... Um, you know, that's great, right, for his students and for Stanley's. <laughs> so.
Yeah, I, you know, I've I've made this uh, <laughs> this conversation with you more autobiographical than this podcast normally is on on my end. Although I certainly have been very clear that this podcast sprang out of what I was what I was thinking about and working on that what what I needed to be thinking about and working on as the as both the country and my professional life was 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 lurching around. And um, one of the things that I was struck by as we're as I was thinking about Cavell and you were talking about you know indulgence is when when I sat down to um, defend my dissertation prospectus, not the dissertation itself, but my plan to write the dissertation, I had a member of the committee say like, Graham, you can't do this. You've got novels in here and films and plans for cities and geographical works and this just you know this is this is just a mess and a jumble and it doesn't go together and you really need to confine yourself you need to restrict yourself i would say you know discipline in the foucauldian sense um to to our discipline to the discipline of english or literature and it looking back on that moment i again i think it was more than anything else, reading Cavell and and not acknowledging these distinctions, these guardrails that are supposed to keep us on on track. I, I wanted to go off track, or really, I wanted to make a new a new course or a new path. I keep coming back to that metaphor, but I can't I can't shake it, as you say. Yeah, well, of course, it's not an it, it's not you know, I would hope an either or, right? Mm. In other words, those disciplinary um, strictures, if you will, uh, they are there to um, to build a path <laughs> mm-hmm. that people can pass through and learn things and and move ahead with their lives. I mean, uh, and of course, in the process, it depends on who's um, you know tending, I guess you could say, to the path, right? Whether it becomes very narrow or mm-hmm. you know. That, that kind of flexibility and responsiveness, and it is. I mean, the the, the you know the danger of incoherence is um, is. I mean, it's not hard to say something that you cherish and and to have it met with a, a kind of um, perplexity on the on the other end. How what what do these two things have to do with each other at, at all? And I think you know talking about mutual aid, of course, mutual comprehensibility. Right, mutual intelligibility. This is the sort of theme of conversation. What you know, Cavell picks up from Milton: meet and happy conversation. Well, happy, I would think, well, and both meet and happy have to do with understanding between the parties involved. Um, and it's, I mean, it's that's it's interesting that I loved, you know, the way in that um, article in here and now. Cavell starts with Plato <laughs> and the problem, you know, of the one and the many, or of the universal, universal in particulars. I mean, there, Cavell has a little essay on Austin about um, how he was rebuked by Austin as a teacher, but sternly as a, uh, uh, for kind of making light of, uh, you know, the, the outmodedness of the idea of universals. <laughs> and, um, you know, that's, uh, but... Um, I'm forgetting I'm not, well, I do forget these days. That's a, <laughs> I love, I'll tell you what I love about that essay also is when he, he quotes Thoreau toward the end about um, 
being at the presence of a, the disposal of a deacon's effects, for his life was not ineffectual, <laughs> and the evil of men, you know, live uh, long after them. And uh, these, and then, but you know, this is a very 19th century thing, right? That everybody who's in Harvard has studied a little Latin, so you know that auction means increase, and then suddenly appeals to the Native American who just burn everything, and he thinks that would be a better idea. Um, we had here in Colombia, this is, I think, uh, utterly pertinent. We had these uh, uh, Buddhist monks who were here uh, um, over the holidays uh, creating a mandala uh, of, you know, out of sand, right in the one of the, the stormwater studio here. And, um, you know, it's a, it's a more than a long day's work. It's, you know, this kind of meditative attention to making this intricate um, icon, and then they dump it in the river when they're done. (laughs) (laughs) And the water carries it away. What is, think of what all the water does, right? Um, But that's the, that's the end of that. (laughs) Yeah, I, I mean, this seems to be the perfect metaphor in, in so many ways for, I mean, you know, Emerson's and Thoreau's journals have been, you know, published and and read, but in some ways that's kind of what diaristic writing is. It just sort of goes, it goes into the the river to be recovered by very few, but then the journals become the essays and the talks and the lectures, and they're sort of, you know, I mean, you could say recycle, but I would say sort of reborn. I was working on a, a project for my other podcast on on AI and I was thinking about calling it um Cavell's Emerson's Descartes Cogito because I wanted to sort of work through what Cavell says about what Emerson says about what Descartes says about this Mm -hmm. famous moment in philosophy and I I do see it as as a uh you know, a a river and one that is endlessly flowing away and also endlessly coming back, which strikes me as a Cavellian image. I just also want to say briefly to respond to something you said earlier, it, it does seem to me precisely that it's very easy to fail to connect with Cavell or Emerson for that matter, mm-hmm. when you're reading them, sometimes the difficulty of the prose, but I mean, we have plenty of contemporary accounts of people saying that Emerson doesn't make any sense. His connections are 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 too big, and Emerson sort of he's not dismissive of the idea that he's failing to make connections, but he's sort of like I, there are people I connect with, and those yeah. are the people who matter. Well, that's in that famous passage about the philanthropist in uh, Self Reliance. Yes, are they my poor? You know, I know by every sign of affinity or something Mm -hmm. uh and um yeah i mean that's um if you're if that's your affinity um it's not like um you know some exclusive club if your affinity is with the poor right i mean poverty it's a in a way it's a tribute to poverty when you dump the mandala in the river right and get you know, and just acknowledge the basics of existence that, you know, that this exercise, this meditative exercise, this kind of spiritual 
um, expansive spirit, if you will, um, is not, um, you know, the be all and the end all. Uh, but I think, you know, Cavell, I mean, that's where the, the uh, that's the passage, of course, where also in self reliance, where he says, um, you know, every word they say chagrins me. Mm. I cannot say, uh, we cannot say. It, it's interesting to follow the pronouns. I just noticed that Cavell was doing something with the pronouns, which I, may misremember now every word they say chagrins me uh we cannot say i think i am but quote some saint or sage right and and certainly cavell hears the echo of descartes there but then he talks about descartes i mean i forget what that um, wonderful essay is that he talks about it as a performative you know it's, mm -hmm. it's like the difference between existentialism i think it's being and existence right that um you know um, the cogito is a performative utterance. Um, it's not just sitting in front. I mean, it is sitting in front of the fire <laughs> and, and meditating. But of course, writing is a performance. And I think also we were just we were talking about that in our little rehearsal about. Um, and this, I mean, I was really just remembering something I'd, you know, talk with Stanley about or with some friends here. But that that the setting of the um, you know, what is it called? First philosophy, yeah. The, um, is uh, with the ball of wax sitting in front of the fire, yes. right? So <laughs> yeah. you're there. I mean, it could be the beginning of a play as well. If you know, if somebody ran on stage and said something to get things going out in the, <laughs> more out in the open. But uh, yeah, I mean, you know, another thing in that regard is um, if you. Um, you know, think of how, what, and, and I think the play, you know, um, the, um, um, the cities of words is of course a wonderful, it's a teaching instrument. It was Cavell's, uh, you know, it is Cavell's pedagogical lectures, which were initially le letters, which are initially um, lectures, but what he gets out of John Stuart Mill, for example, is, is um, you know, not utilitarianism, <laughs> moral perfectionism, mm -hmm. right? And 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 it's you know we we uh, we don't even know our desires, right? So the very that you know the thing that Emerson, um, you know, resists in Kant, is um, the is in is inclination as taboo, right? Um, you know we may um, say it is whim, you know. But um, we cannot spend the day. It may be win at la whim at last, but we cannot spend the day in explanation. And so, uh, and, and a word like attraction too is is a key a key word. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, for and of course, uh, you know, Mill, of course, then also writes about marriage. But if you look at the passages in the beginning of Cities of Words, um, that's very helpful. Just in terms of the kind of focused interpretation out of which Cavell creates his pedagogical lectures and um, essays and other writings. Um, and don't you, I mean, aren't you always surprised that in the, you know, the way that he goes through a number of people um, in this is that essay here and now, um, he, he just, there's a language of understanding that with Hume, right? With Hume, mm -hmm. with Kant, um, that kind of uh, turns your head a little bit 
away from what you thought they were saying, what you yeah. think, what you think you are hearing there. And um, yeah, I forget. Um, well, I have all those books here, but um, I should probably burn them in the end of this conversation. <laughs> That's my, you know, collection. Yeah, something. I mean, I, I just I keep thinking of all sorts of things. We're just going to do another one of these episodes late, later this year, I suppose. But I, I'm thinking, I'm not sure I pronounced the name Christopher Binfay. Is that well, right? Yeah, you know? I think. Yeah, yeah. So uh, he, you know, had a recent piece um, uh, in the New York Review of Books in which that that's about, it was about a book of where Emerson traveled and met with John Muir, who is another sort of anarch, anarchic mm -hmm. person in, in, in key ways. And Benfi takes the uh, obligatory swipe at, at Emerson for saying these, these lines, like, are they my poor and you know for not joining the abolitionist movement and and that sort of thing but going back and reading emerson after having you know read cavell after having been reading kropotkin and emma goldman and everything the anarchists are absolutely against the idea of charity against the idea of forming these charitable societies against the abstract notion that someone across the world deserves a, a tithe and what they employ employer implore you to do is find the you know rude woodcutter in your village and be in solidarity with that person and in that sense emerson's impulse which every class i've ever been in i think at least that, that has discussed that passage maybe not yours and plenty that i've taught has said like oh emerson you know very interesting idea but you know when, when it comes down to it it's it's unpalatable his his vision of society but in fact kropotkin and goldman didn't think it was unpalatable they thought that you know caring about people a thousand miles away there's nothing wrong with that but the obligation that you have to give something up in this mechanical way a, a, a way i think required by both analytic philosophy and in you know sort of in peter singer and continental philosophy like by kant and emerson says just find the person near you who whose soul speaks to yours and who is in you know, in in need and who you can help. And if that's not an expression of solidarity and mutual aid, I don't I don't know where else to to find it. And I would suggest that that's that that's another part of this inheritance that sort of led me eventually to these anarchist thinkers. Well, you know, um, Cavell writes about that uh, passage. Um, again, this is in, of course, it's in Emerson's Transcendental Etudes, ultimately, but was probably in conditions handsome and unhandsome first, but um, he takes it back. I mean, Emerson, Emerson was a, a you know Unitarian minister, and um, you know there's that famous moment with Mary Magdalene, where she takes the precious ointment or whatever, and washes Christ's feet with it, and Judas says, you know, why the waste? Yeah, and. Uh, Take it from there, uh, but but that's you know the sense that um, uh, this is a moment to celebrate who's among us and mm -hmm. uh, 
right? Your calculation, you know, your calculation about the economics of this moment. Um, that I mean, when 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 Thoreau says he would publish his guilt, uh, that is when he's acknowledging uh, sustenance, mm -hmm. the the the, uh, the outlay of whatever uh, he has to pay or do in order. I mean, I guess sustenance is food, clothing, and shelter um, in, uh, you know, but somebody who's making the clothes, right? I'm sure that's yeah. on, his, on his mind. So there's a sense of, so you could say in publishing his guilt, there's a sense of this uh, connectivity, um, but the, to acknowledge it is one thing, to moralize in, that, in a kind of self-righteous way about it is another you know, off-putting thing to say the least. Um, yeah, well, I, I think. Go ahead. I was just say I find it. I find it off-putting. <laughs> I think. I mean, you know, um, the fact of Emerson's training for the ministry is not um, beside the point, of course. And and the fact that what was happening to the ministry um, was a kind of um, what shall we say, emptying out an emptying out of enthusiasm and passion um, in order to um, open up to this kind of historical criticism, particularly that was coming from Germany. Uh, you know, we talked before about, about uh, what happens to um, uh, Emerson's older brother when he goes to Göttingen and, and to, you know, kind of drink from the original fountain. I guess the guy there was Eichhorn the great oh, yeah. um, uh, biblical scholar, um, but that this um, idea that if you know where, where all the different texts come from and uh, you know kind of what strata in the history of the Roman Empire we're talking about or whoever, Alexander, uh, <laughs> before that, you're going to get at the quote-unquote truth of what these things have to say rather than the lived truth, of course, of generations of people who've been trying not only to understand them but to enact what they what they move people to what they move us to do if you will uh, but that was you know so Emerson himself you know Emerson left the ministry of course because he in the crisis point is is uh, serving communion and it's an argument with mere forms you know mm -hmm. uh, rather than a kind of of interiority genuine sort of interiority but but um the 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 lack of the that you know that wonderful real thing i mean i know you you know that i uh, i have a wonderful friend and who's a great hebrew scholar james kugel and he has um spent his whole career playing off traditional interpretation and scholarly interpretation and that moment really from the renaissance on right i mean Erasmus was gave us a, a, <laughs> a gave us a new text of the New Testament, <laughs> and people were worried. I mean, have you heard? Who's the guy? Who's the guy? At Chapel Hill. He's a wonderful scholar. Oh, Bart Ehrman. Yeah, exactly. He talks. I mean, that, um, and he, you know, is coming out of a very fundamentalist Wheaton College right uh, background. And he says his wife, who's an Episcopalian, really doesn't think much of this matters. <laughs> Have you heard in his lectures say that? Which, but that's a kind of paradox, if you will, existential paradox, let's say, which is quite compelling. 
right? You know, I mean, he was, he, I think he went to Princeton and worked on the, the revised standard version, you know, when, what's the guy's name? I don't know, but it's the um, later edition of the revised standard version. So he had to deal with all that kind of scholarship. And, but, um, you know, the truth, well, that is true. I mean, it's historically true. And that's the beautiful thing of Kugel's work. He's not denying it. He's acknowledging it fully, and uh, but not leaving it at that. And I think that, uh, as I said, I think Stanley, Stanley's just always surprising because he does his homework, you know, and he, um, and he has a way of also making it count, uh, the research that he's done, a, a kind of a, a writer's way of um, precision and um, engagement, really. So... Hallelujah, Stanley. Rest in peace. You know, <laughs> I mean, there's just a lot. I'm sure you you'll find this. Well, you're doing a course, right? I saw on Emerson and democracy. Yes, yes. So um, I'm teaching a course this coming semester. Uh, the course is just called um, di digital production or something. It's just you have to make the students make something videos podcasts something and so the the content is open and mm -hmm. i'm gonna you know the last person who taught i think made it about fan fiction which is not something that i uh know anything about but i am very interested right now in emerson and and democracy so the students and i were gonna we're gonna do something about that unless i suppose they completely rebel against that concept which i'm also going to give them give them room to do i don't i don't seem to me that that would be a good thing thing to say i command you to uh make podcasts about democracy i'm not I'm, i don't want to put myself there <laughs> well um you know they're wonderful i think uh, i think when cavell talks about um uh cary grant doesn't he's quote emerson he wears the holiday in his <laughs> eye and i forget what the essay of emerson is but I know Bill Rothman, who was a, a film scholar, who was a student of um, Cavell's, a graduate student of Cavell's. Um, I forget the essay, but he's he he um, just talks about the representation of you know like human beings walking uh, mm -hmm. in the kind of the kind of you know, well, it's interesting you know the kind of animation that the prose itself imparts, and and the Cavell's. Um, summoning of the idea of animism is is quite interesting it's in that uh, world is things essay but it's also in the essay on i think maybe on coleridge and kant um but the idea that animism uh, um you know it might be a requirement here <laughs> that this uh, i mean the way that he's you know this idea this really does connect to are they my poor the word that um, the word that um, um, that Emerson uses in experience is the a paltry idea of experience, right? If empiricism just boils down to well, literally boils down to water boils at two hundred twelve degrees right. <laughs> at you know at sea level two hundred degrees two hundred twelve degrees Fahrenheit. Um, if it's if it's it's a paltry poor idea of human experience and um are they my poor well i wouldn't would think that the poor uh are um acknowledging their poverty and that's a 
good step toward uh, another, you know, toward creating a mandala for a few days. Yes, and then one, I mean, one would think one would think those poor uh, belong belong to themselves in a way yeah. that Emerson, I think, would 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 cherish, and that your your average charitable reformer perhaps perhaps did not. Yeah, I get that. I mean, there's a wonderful account in Richardson's biography of this Methodist craftsman who becomes pivotal in Emerson as a young man in his own relation to, I think faith is such a, you know, just the way Cavell is stuck with knowledge as what philosophy cares about so much, you know, in so much of its modern instances. Um, of course, faith, you know, to say I believe the world exists, you see, Cavell would say, I think it's a little different from just, you know, I have a faith in it, you know, where at the same time he says, well, if I, you know, is it Johnson talking about Hume? If I kick the, if I kick the curb, I know it's there. And Cavell's, I think Cavell's word is contempt. Maybe he uses the word violence too. I would use violence. <laughs> but, you know, the tone of that assertion, um, it's bracing, but uh, it's uh, might miss some of the softer tones in between that we would also want to, I would say, cultivate and acknowledge. Um, but uh, yeah, democracy and Emerson. I mean, I think I mentioned uh, David LaRocca to you. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, but his book, Estimating Emerson, is just a rich. Do you know that book? Because it's a, it goes from, uh, uh, it goes up to Cavell, but it's about the reception of Emerson. So certainly it has, you know, Dewey on Emerson. It has, um, it has James on Emerson. But many, like uh, you, you may not have heard of Santayana for sure. And you know, I mean, it is uh, worth saying, certainly in my world of cherished associations, that um, you know the story about Walker Percy declining to give the um, uh, sesquicentennial Phi Beta Kappa address, which would have been the 150th anniversary of Emerson's The American Scholar. And um, the biography, the excellent biography, I've, I know we've talked about this before, um, Pilgrim in the Ruins, um, sort of structures itself on uh, on Percy's anti-Emersonianism. And um, I think you can you can certainly see that in in Forney Aiken in the in the last gentleman. But uh, Robert Coles, among others, were were in, uh, behind that invitation to get Percy, but many of the people wanted Percy to come. Um, but uh, Percy simply said he, he had other things to do, but he also said, I don't really know a lot about Emerson. And um, he's, you know, cited an essay by somebody else at Chapel Hill. <laughs> that would kind of say, maybe, maybe sum up his views, but to lock him into that, um, you know, the openness of a, of the, of a novel like um, uh, The Moviegoer, isn't that what really kind of wins your heart there's a kind of openness in it and and life on the ground as well but um i think that um that uh, percy would have been fascinating well percy does does quote uh from uh, in one of his letters to coles he acknowledges how um uh cavell's description of really the cartesian isolation of the individual in the, in the movie theater in the dark 
And um, so I think that there would have been plenty of time if Percy were alive and kicking for him to uh, appreciate Cavell further if it would have been any use to him. I'm struck, we we should start wrapping up, but I'm struck over and over again by, um, it seems that everyone feels the need to resist Emerson, and then I would argue mostly succumb to him. Certainly Ralph Waldo Ellison famously resisted Emerson and came around to him. Cavell has written about how, you know, he was interested in Thoreau and indeed Dewey before Emerson, and he, you know, rejects Dewey in a way he didn't reject Thoreau, but he ultimately seems to come home to Emerson. And then I teach Walker Percy's essay, uh, the loss of the creature, which seems to me fundamentally Emersonian, uh, almost every academic year, and yet I I'm aware that I'm aware that Percy, you know, wa wants to decline Emerson. I mean, there's all sorts of things we could talk about here with birthright and our constitution and mm -hmm. and everything, but we probably should mostly skip it in the in the interest of time. But this idea of Emerson as a as an unacknowledged not unacknowledged as an unwanted um, ancestor seems to me sort of powerful over over and over again. Well, I mean, Updike uh, the, is the most powerful statement of that, that essay of his Emersonianism. Um, that, uh, and it's just that it's not that he's wrong, he's just making something of Emerson that is not required. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he's generalizing in a particular direction. I mean, in a way, to say um, that the, you know, every sentence in an Emersonian paragraph could be a topic sentence is, uh, would perhaps kind of put a different spin on the idea of generalization and the idea of, you know, drawing conclusions um, too quickly, too quickly. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the, I think that Dewey, of course, Dewey, Cavell wrote about Dewey early on, but he doesn't, he's, you know, he always talks about the earliest of my essays that I find still, you know, uh, <laughs> interesting. That's after the Dewey yeah. essays. But in the memoir, you know, there's a, there is a, a teacher who's a pragmatist and who's a very, Cavell is, is very appreciative that there's such a person uh, in the philosophy department at UCLA, and um, he, he, but he um, describes the man inviting students to his house, having the class, and the sad thing is that as the class goes on, there's a lot of drinking, and um, this the man gets drunk, you know, and when and and he's left kind of saying with a slurred speech, human problems, human problems, <laughs> as though <laughs> that was, you know. I mean, there, yeah, there is some interesting, the, the uh, also his friendship with Henry Aiken at Harvard has a kind of um, moment of, of the, the, you know, the cost of, of drinking too much, but also the loss of a friendship, which was very strong. But Aiken, I think because of that episode that Cavell describes was really went to Brandeis. Um, but he was a significant, uh, philosopher, and I think of one very appealing to Cavell, much more of a kind of humanistic uh, philosopher at Harvard. Um, but if we need to wrap up, I'll just, you know, say it's fun to talk. I appreciate it. 
So I want to yeah. read uh, one. I, I just was flipping through here and there before before our talk. Um, I want to read one bit, and then that can you you should respond, and then this can be the end because you know I want to bring Cavell back to to America and democracy and maybe anarchism. I I, I like this bit. He's, he's he's apparently this is written you know for for the French talking about uh, the future, and he writes of America. Cavell does. If the new world is not new, then America does not exist. It is merely one more outpost of old oppressions. And it seems to me, going back to steps without a path and, and also thinking about someone like Emma Goldman or the, the various people in America who see affinities between the American project and you know what I would call anarchism or democracy or whatever, that no one has put it better, I think, ever. Than Cavell in that line. That's my favorite expression. If it's if it's not new, then then it's not America. And if you're content with the old oppressions of the past, then there's it hasn't it hasn't started yet. And moral perfectionism, if you want to think of moral perfectionism in terms of a country, is the constant awareness of the unattainability. And nevertheless, the grasping towards this new yet unapproachable America. Oscar Wilde says utopia is the island that you land on to leave immediately for the utopia beyond that, this new yet unapproachable utopia. And I wanted to see what you what you thought about this idea and this, again, this affinity. Well, I think, I mean, uh, this new yet unapproachable America, of course, is is inexperience, that's the essay. But, um, you know, what it's uh, it's saying is that um, it's unapproachable because you're already there. <laughs> the newness has to be in, a, in some turn of your own psyche and some, in some change uh, within yourself, some opening up, if you will. And, and that's, that's what America is. Um, it's, that, it's that spirit. Uh, it's, you know, and when does it happen? It happens every day. The revolution is one revolution of the sun. It's just, that's what the revolution is. What can happen to you and others on an ordinary day? Um, you know, a change of heart, right? Or a cultivation of a change of heart that you had yesterday and realize it's a keeper. So I think that's, uh, that would be. The revolution is every day. Yeah. Perfect. The sun. The sun. <laughs> one revolution of the sun. One one revolution of the sun. Okay. Is 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 the chance for the for the change of heart. That's it. I mean, because the essay Emerson's essay begins right. You can, he doesn't have contact with anything. Mired in grief for his son. Patience, patience. That's what he says. Patience. <laughs> right. Which means suffering, of course. Which means suffering, <laughs> and and uh, ideally, eventually, connection. Oh, or, for sure. Or, or reconnection, but for connections sure. that have to be reforged with each with each revolution. Or they may the not even have to be forged. They, they reforged. They may just befall you as you walk down the street, you know, and see something, see somebody. I think that's. Yeah. But that's my that's my take here at. Whatever time it is, <laughs> here, here, here at ten eleven 
a.m. Uh, on January. Oh, I don't know what what the date is because the semester hasn't started yet. Yeah. Larry, thank you. So, I mean, what what can I say? Thank you for a for a lifetime. But uh, also well, for this interview. You're kind, but it's great to be in touch. As I said, it's provocative. It it uh, uh, livens me. You know, it revives me to talk about Emerson like this with you. So, we'll be in touch. Okay. Okay. The conversation isn't over. <laughs> Very good. <laughs> All Take right. care now. See you. Thank you. Bye, Larry. Bye.